If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Monday, September 9th, 2019. A lot of stuff happened while we were away, Drew. Yes. We would have done this episode sooner, but you were poking around a antique... Uh, I was! I was! Yeah. I was trapped at Brimfield, which... I forget who it is who does the flea market flip show, but they go to Brimfield and they find people to create crafts. If you want to torture me, you would put me on that show. But Nancy loves it, and we do thanks for the people we love. So Happy wife, happy life. Am I right, There we go. But what made me happy over the past couple of weeks is, well, first of all, the the Steven Universe movie. What, What did you think of that? I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I thought mm-hmm. it was really, really great. I thought the songs were great. The animation. Mm-hmm. I still think that's one of the most beautiful looking animated shows um, on TV. That show is just so full of like empathy and and sweetness. And I was just so happy that it that they pulled it off. I th- I was really, really impressed. I don't know how you felt about it. I don't know if we can call her the villain, Spindle. Right. How they handled her animation mm-hmm. in this thing. Was stunning. I mean, she really was almost designed, seemed to be very heavily influenced by the old Fleischer stuff. In fact, when I was watching the animation, it's like, this can't be in twos. This has to be in ones. She is so ridiculously fluid, and she was such a complex character. Yes. The way she moved was, it's crazy. The fact that her arms stretching out and wrapping around Steven and all that Mm -hmm. stuff was really... It was really crazy, and it was unlike anything that they've really done on the show before, mm-hmm. up until this point, which was really cool, too, I thought. You get to the last five or ten minutes of it, and Beach City is basically in tatters. And I thought, okay, so this is how we set up season six. This is what Steven's got to do. And no, in five minutes, in a song, they basically hit the reset, and the city is fixed. And Does this, in fact, stick? Do we stick with an aged-up Steven? Do we- yeah. We stick with a settlement for the gems. Will Connie actually get to go to space camp? That's a huge, you know. That was a question on my mind, you know. As I thought for sure while watching it, there were these moments where it's like, okay, so Steven's dad has hurt his arm, and okay, that'll be something they'll deal with in season six. Nope, that gets cured. As strictly as standalone, I love this. Like you said, the music was great. A wonderful story with a great message. You can't really have a happy ending because the future moves on. Right. But you can continue to work toward that. And unlike most animated features this year, you've seen it, which we, mm-hmm. you know is very good. You know, you haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet. You haven't seen Lion King, but you've seen mm-hmm. Steven Universe. You, you, saw, you watched How to Train Your Dragon 3, though, recently. I did. I did. Before Alice went on the plane to go back to the California, that was finally available for pay-per-view. And I remember what you were saying when you first saw it, about how it really did stick the landing and there were some some lovely pieces and the art design. Oh, my God. 
There were individual scenes of this thing, like, remember the the scene just before the villain arrives and the light dragon is, like, in in the tall grass and they're they're running through? I've never seen a scene like that in a CG animated feature before, between the lighting and the art design. It was the stylized type of reality that you want in CG. But at the same time, every so often there would be these chunks of story where it's just sort of like... Like, they had F. Marie Abraham as the voice of the villain. And do you think you've got an F. Marie Abraham? You want the villain to be memorable. And, and Drew, I only watched this five days ago. I can't even remember what his name was. Uh, yeah, I don't know what his name was. Vlad or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. And what about the fact that they, they fired T.J. Miller based mm-hmm. on his recent conduct? And then mm-hmm. they give that character, for the first time in any of the movies, the most screen time. Yeah. You know, he's ever had. It's like, oh my God. It was like the opening scene where they're doing the raid on the trappers. I mean, I get it's a style choice. You're doing it in fog and they're flying in. But it's the notion of I'm literally peering into the screen, you know, trying to figure out who's where, what, right. you know, I mean, it's just sort of like, is this really how you want to start off your final chapter of the dragon saga? Where it's like, I have no idea you know, who I'm looking at. Yeah. There were so many strange choices where it's like, do you remember in the first How to Train Your Dragon, these Vikings that were having this hard scrabble existence and whenever they showed the entire village together, there were like 50 of them, 60 of them. Right. And now you got these crowd scenes where it's three to 500 people where <laughs> you're looking at all this wonderful design, but it's like, who the hell am I looking at? Or, or why did the trappers have... A hundred boats. I mean, I get it's the third film. You want to up the scale. You want to raise the stakes. I guess it's a part of me. I so enjoy Dean Dubois' work. I just sort of felt like, wow, this is how it's going to end. Yeah. The last five minutes were beautiful. Though. No, they are. They were absolutely were. I And they were individual chunks. In fact, the mating sequence or the, the, the romantic flight sequence between... Toothless and the Light Dragon. Oh, the, excuse me, Night Light Fury. Light Fury, yes. You know, in the weird sort of way, I kind of now group this movie with Meet the Robinsons. Okay, wh- why is that? <laughs> well, no, 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 Meet the Robinsons, for as chaotic as that movie gets, it sticks to the landing. The last 10 to 15 minutes of that movie are assured storytelling and it wraps up beautifully and it ends on a hopeful note. And there's so much of How to Train Your Dragon where it's just sort of like, I'm with you because I enjoyed the first film a lot and the second film, not so much. The fact that it ended as well as it did that wonderful scene with Hiccup and Astrid and their children and you get to see Toothless and, and his kids. And that was just beautifully done. And I just wish that the rest of the film had been that assured storytelling. I agree. I feel like I, I need to circle back on it. Sometimes something like this, I wonder, okay, would that have played in a really thrill movie theater in the dark better than on the flat screen here at the house? Right. I just remember what you said about when you saw it. They're just truly beautiful, great chunks of this. But, you know, there's also other parts where it's like, mm-hmm. mm, Yeah. Well, Abominable is getting good reviews out of uh, 
Toronto. So I saw that. I yeah. saw that. And the ad campaign, I, you know, I don't know if you've seen the scene where they yet where they're, they're trying to pass him off as a yak. Yes, I did see that. That's really funny. Very, very hopeful about this one. Really, really looking forward to it. But at the same time, I, you know, I've been a fan of Jill Colton's work. Jesus, far back as open season. Oh, before I forget, we talked briefly on the last show about the Disney television presentations at this last D23 Expo. And we talked about, of course, the, the Simpsons panel. And Matt Groening actually told this great story about how the couch gag that starts every single episode of The Simpsons actually has a Disney tie. It turns up Groening, uh, when he was a kid, grew up watching the Mickey Mouse show, which, if you remember... At the end of the title sequence, they had like 10 or 15 variations on Donald Duck hitting the gong. Sometimes he was electrocuted, sometimes it exploded. And grading, they decided after doing all the shirts for the Tracy Allman show that the Simpsons would go to series. Grading was like, the Jetsons didn't run more than a season two, you know, the Flintstones ran five. There's no way the Simpsons are going to last. But I want this. I want my Donald Duck-like gag. Because, you know, again, we're only going to run for 13 episodes and then we're gone. So at least there'll be 13 gags. Never anticipating that September 29th, the 31st season of The Simpsons starts up on Fox, along with Family Guy starts Season 18, and Bob's Workers is back for season 10. That's amazing. That one, by the way, they're moving it from 8 p.m. to 9. And while we're talking Bob's Burgers, we have a release date for Bob's Burgers, the movie. That's July 17, 2020, which I know is, is going to put you in a very tough decision point, Drew, because what is that? The Disneyland's 65th birthday, or do you go to the movie? <laughs> Do I go to the park and sweat, sweat, sweat? No, I I think the 60th, the 60th anniversary was maybe the hottest I've ever been because they had encouraged you to dress up like 1955. And I just remember, this is when I was still a cast member at the time, mm-hmm. and I was covering it for the, the website, and then I ran out through the backstage entrance in Toontown, and I just remember mm-hmm. st- I was just covered. I was dripping sweat. It's the hottest I've ever been, so... Yeah, I mean, I might have to just uh, stay in the theater and watch Bob's Burgers instead. So, when you were there at the park on that day, mm-hmm. did you travel back and forth between California Adventure and Disneyland proper at all? Or well, I I had to go over and get that great photo op on the day of the the sixtieth. Mm-hmm. They had different photo ops around the park of what it looked like in nineteen fifty five. Okay. And if you went over to California Adventure, right in front of Grizzly Peak. There was a shot of the parking lot. <laughs> so somewhere I have a photo of me in front of this oh. photo op. That is me in front of the parking lot, which is pretty funny. Yeah. So I will, I will, we'll put that up online. So yeah. Okay. Well, let, let me ask though, if you left Disneyland, that they had actually shut down Disney. In fact, I think they didn't reopen it till like three or four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I went in, I would think I came back at about four or five before the park opened, and I think I was using the, the shuttle, the behind-the-scenes shuttle. This is okay. something that people don't know, is that you don't really, 
the whole second gate is a ruse because they're connected behind the scenes. All right, so you drove under the tunnel. Yeah, I think I got off at uh, Hollywood Land, that stop. They had closed the park. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I had my little press pass from there, and they had just warned folks that it's like, if you leave, you can't get back in. But the same thing. They had driven us back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it was one of these things where it's like, well... I know I can get over there, but they've shut down the shuttle. So I I actually walked. They have an elevated sidewalk that actually takes you in that tunnel. And it was it was very Westworld. It was, oh, you know, really? Walk, yeah, I've, never, I, I've never done that walk. So what, what yeah. was it? Well, you, you walk past Harbor House, but there's this elevated sidewalk right next to it. But again, the, the, the question was, that as you're walking in the tunnel underward, it's like, okay, which set of stairs do I take? up and i guessed right i actually came out behind right next to the hyperion theater at the whole time i figuring that well this is the moment that disney security falls on me like wolves right well those crowds were crazy were you at the when they dropped the rope and everything on that day no no i i came in later though you've met angela ragno our friend yes they were doing that souvenir popcorn bucket of the mickey ears balloon and I made the mistake of saying, sure, I'll get one for you. And then she made a color request. And then it's like, oh, okay. Walk around the park <laughs> looking for the color. Then getting in line and, and purchasing the thing and then taking it to UPS to send home. Oh, my God. It was crazy, crazy. I've never seen that size crowd. And have you seen the Family Guy, epi- or excuse me, uh, Modern Family episode? Of them at Disneyland? No, I never have. They were supposedly shooting in Disneyland that day as part of this. And when you watch the show now and you see how huge the crowds are, and I just think about the poor PAs who were like, could you wait for a sec while we get this shot? Right. They wanted to be there to shoot with those crowds. So. Oh my God. Okay, so we're, we're talking about things coming in September. Okay, so we're recording this on the 9th. Tomorrow, Aladdin, the new live-action version, becomes available for purchase on Blu-ray and DVD. The digital version dropped back on August 27th. I was kind of intrigued, though, by Disney's decision to bundle this with the 1992 version. Yes. Yeah, they're releasing the 1992 version again. But I think that the 1992 version came out not that long ago on blu-ray right yeah as part of what the signature collection which by the way continues on september 24th with sleeping beauty becoming available on blu-ray and dvd and am i reading too much into the timing of this because we've got maleficent mistress of evil coming out on October 18th, so are we priming the pump? I think so. I mean, you certainly, you must remember when it was, like, totally forbidden for the two entities to ever sort of, like, be promoted at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if it was Maleficent, you were just promoting Maleficent, it wasn't Sleeping Beauty. But now they have this whole strategy where they're putting out the older movies again, and it's just really interesting to me, especially because I worked, you know, for a, a part of the company that was very closely aligned with consumer products that mm-hmm. that they're doing both of them at the same time. It's just fascinating to me. It wasn't all that long ago when the whole don't cross the stream. Exactly. Exactly. And now it's like whatever raises awareness, whatever makes people that much more compelled, 
Well, it's kind of intriguing to have Sleeping Beauty coming out on the 24th and on September 20th. We get season two of Disenchanted. They just talk about Matt Groening and The Simpsons and really looking forward to where the show goes in its second season on Netflix. Yeah, it looks really... Did you see the trailer that they released? Yeah, yeah. Pretty interesting. What's intriguing for me as opposed to, you know, what they do with The Simpsons where you do... The standalone episodes, Graining has genuinely tried to sort of tell, or at least with season one, kind of an overarching story. And with the elf character seemingly dead at the, you know, sorry, spoil there, folks. <laughs> but suddenly we're in Monty Python country where I'm not quite dead. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. But at the end of the month, September 30th, is that correct? Yes. Can we actually talk about where you were last week? Or? Yeah, I was at a I was at a long lead day for Frozen Two, but I can't mm-hmm. talk about anything I saw or mm-hmm. what we did until the thirtieth, and then then I'm coming on here and we're doing we're doing a lot of stuff. I've got audio from there with the directors and filmmakers, and yeah, it's gonna be great. I can't wait for to share it with everybody. That's gonna have to be to the tail end of the month. Yes. Again. Hang in there. You gotta wait and. Speaking of waiting, if you can take a moment and listen to this ad, when we get back from that, Drew and I are going to talk about an interesting letter we got from a, a listener here at FineTune. Drew, this letter is from uh, Peter Jenkins. Hi, Jim and Drew. In the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there were a number of animators in the Disney Renaissance who were practically royalty. Glenn Keane, Andrea Stasia, Mark Henn, James Baxter, Eric Goldberg, Kathy Zielinski, and so many more. In the tragedy of Disney abandoning these legends' chosen art form, I was just wondering if you had any insight to what they're all up to these days. Every now and then I hear snippets of info, but as it is, they seem like fallen heroes scattered to the wind. And I know that this gets us all asked all the time, but do you think there's any chance... In the current animation climate that Disney might take a chance on a new hand-drawn feature, get the band back together, it would be a dream come true. Uh, well, first of all... <laughs> a loaded question, obviously. Lots of load. Yeah. yeah. I, well, first of all, Peter, thanks for the, the email. But geez, fallen heroes scattered to the winds. It's, it makes it sound like we, we should find some of these artists standing on an off, you know, an on-ramp with a cardboard sign that reads, we'll animate for food. And... <laughs> Why don't we start with the perpetual question, Drew? Is is Disney going to get back into hand-drawn? This particularly came up strongly with Paperman, right? Yes. And there was speculation that what was then called, what was it called? Ma- Big Maui or Magic Maui or whatever Moana was called initially was going mm-hmm. to be in that same yep. style, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the more delightful aspects of Moana, you know, the, the, the mini Maui that character that Eric Goldberg did, the animated tattoo, gave a lot of people hope. And at the same time, when Pete Docter and Jennifer Lee were set up as the new Ubermeisters of their individual arms of the Disney animation empire, you know, one at Walt Disney Animation Studios and the other one in charge of Pixar, those guys got asked about hand-drawn. And the problem is right now, Disney has a CG pipeline in place. Winnie the Pooh came out in July of 2011. Is that right? June, July? Yes. Yep. Okay. But, you know, there's a lot of people 
both in the industry and outside of the industry who couldn't help but notice that Disney made the call to release Winnie the Pooh, at least in North America, on the exact same day that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 was due to hit. And that, in effect, that was a suicide run. It would be the equivalent of putting Winnie the Pooh in theaters with Avengers Endgame. So many people who had never even seen a Harry Potter movie were going to go see the last one to see how it it ended. So that movie was never going to make big dough in that time slot. And there were a number of people both inside and outside the studio who pointed out that Winnie the Pooh had actually been released in the UK and Ireland that same year, Drew, in yeah. April. Yeah. And it did fine business. You had a film that already did well in a foreign market, when it had some breathing room, why did you put it out there? Depending on who you talk to, it's like, look, it was a deliberate choice. They had done Princess and the Frog, which, uh, by the way, you were just talking about the 10th anniversary screening that was held last week at the Academy? Or? Oh, my God. Did you see The amount of people that were there, first of all, Anika Noni Rose was there. She did a performance. There was a Zydeco band. Mm-hmm. There were all these people from the production that were there, too, including Ron and John, mm-hmm. uh, Marlon, you know, Marlon all of these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 And mm-hmm. uh, it's just amazing that it was for the 10th anniversary now. Mm-hmm. Bruce Smith was there, who we love, and we still have to circle back around. Or did we do our baby kids segment? We did. No, we? we're no, we haven't done it yet. Okay, we got to do that. Yeah, but all of these people were there to celebrate it, and it just struck me as very interesting that they are so outwardly facing celebratory of this animated mm-hmm. feature, and then sort of have not gone back to hand drawn since. Yeah, and if you remember, after Disney bought Pixar in uh, January of 2006, and then that year they held the annual meeting in New Orleans, and here's John Lasseter standing on stage talking about, we're bringing back hand-drawn. If you talk with people at the studio, the belief was that they were going to get at least three films in. They already had the CG pipeline in place, but they were going to figure out a way to get hand-drawn going at Disney again. And In the end, it just it was two and out. Mm-hmm. We did Princess of the Frog, and it did okay business. And we did a film based on Winnie the Pooh, which was our second most popular character, at least from a licensing point of view, right behind Mickey. And people didn't come out for this. So they argued that, look, the people voted. They didn't buy tickets. And it's like, well, you put the film on theaters the same weekend as Deathly Hallows Part 2. Right. <laughs> you deliberately killed it. Between the Paperman experiment, you've got brand new folks in charge at both Pixar and at Disney. We've talked previously on, on other episodes about Klaus, the uh, Sergio Paulus film that Netflix is putting out. November 8th, it's got a theatrical release to qualify for Academy Award, and then it's available for streaming on the 15th. Correct. And we're very excited about this movie. Well, as are a lot of people who love hand-drawn animation, because the big deal with with Klaus is the use of volumetric lighting and that how it gives this hand-drawn film its own unique look. And there's a lot of people who hope that if this one hits and it's big that people will warm to the the idea of hand-drawn and maybe Disney will take it up again. You mentioned Glenn Keane, Eric Goldberg, uh, Mark Cannon, the like. And do you remember, Drew, how 
There was a time where Disney would throw the spotlight on folks like this, or Nick Ranieri, or or Mike Surrey, or that sort of thing. And they kept trying to sort of resurrect the idea of the nine old men, these artists that were true masters of character animation. And the problem was that because they had split the production teams, that was after Aladdin, right? With the Florida team and the... Burbank team, or? There was the famous morning where if you went to feature animation, they they literally had one presentation room set up for Pocahontas and one oh, yes. presentation yes, yes, yes. For, for Lion King. And the idea was that Aladdin made so much money, over $500 million, you know, back in 1992, that that was insane. Yeah. And so it's like, well, we got to have more of these. But it wasn't a question of... You had all of these people working on one film. You had split the teams apart. And so you you couldn't necessarily go our nine old men because, you know, you had, for example, Glenn Keane working on Pocahontas and you had Eric Goldberg directing rather than animating that. And on the other hand, you pivoted to Lion King. And because so many of the older, you know, the more experienced animators at, at Disney looked at that one and went, eh, you had your younger guys. You had the Bancrofts and, and the like working on that one. Chris Sanders. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it exactly. So you know where the Nine Old Men thing came from, right? There was this famous book written in 1936 about the U.S. Supreme Court, and the title literally was The Nine Old Men. Because everybody who's on the Supreme Court, all nine justices, are over 70. And how can they be making decisions about you know, how we live our modern lives when you know all of them are 70? By the way, I checked it today, Drew, before we, we get started here. And uh-huh. the current folks who are, are nine justices, if you average their age, they're 69 and two-thirds years old. So, oh, great. I'm glad we've advanced. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there we go. But yeah, when Walt called Mark and Ward and and Wooly his nine old men, it wasn't necessarily a term of affection. Mm-hmm. Walt always loved the new. Walt always loved moving forward. So when he started, they started using this to describe the senior members of the team. This is when Walt's working on Disneyland, working on Di- Disney World, mapping out plans for Epcot and how to do people movers and animatronics. He's all about the new. And if you talked with Frank and Ollie during this period, they would quietly kind of bitch and moan about the fact that they would only see Walt like once or twice a month when they're working on a brand new feature. Right. Because this guy was so busy on outside projects and they had worked for the company long enough that they remembered when they saw Walt every day and that, you know, they'd spend hours with him in conference rooms, you know, going over the smallest details on stories. And and then there's the, the other real issue here, which is basically starting in like the mid 90s. We went from talking about individual animators, folks like Mark Henn, how he based Jasmine on the picture he had in his wallet of his sister from high school and that sort of thing. And starting really around the time that Toy Story got released, there was this kind of weird shift away from talking about the animators to suddenly animation is really more of a director's medium. You know, people started talking about John Lasseter, Pete Docter, Brad Bird. But some of that, I think, is also because of the way 
hand-drawn animation is done versus CG. Yeah, it also coen- I think that Katzenberg put a lot more emphasis on the animators as rock stars phenomenon mm-hmm. as well. I mean, he was out there getting them interviews with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that great anecdote from, I think it was the men who would be king about how DreamWorks animation, all the cars in the parking lot were Porsches um, mm-hmm. in those first few years, because he really put an emphasis on the importance of the animators around that time too. Oh, absolutely. But there's this period of time from April of 1994 to November of 1995, where the animation industry changes in such a fundamental way. And it's in that like 16 month period. You start off April of 1994 with Frank Wells dying. In a lot of ways, people feel like Frank Wells was kind of the governor on the engine when it came to Michael Eisner, he was, you know, maybe we don't want to do that, or maybe there's another way to go here. But in May of 1994, we have The Return of Jafar come out. You look at that, and that's really only the first five episodes of the Aladdin, the animated series. I mean, remember how they did that with, like, the original DuckTales? The first five episodes were sort of the origin story, setting up the stakes, and they were deliberately designed so they could work as standalone episodes, but if you ran them back-to-back, they could be a two-hour-long television special or sort of a programming event to start the series. Tad Stones, the producer of Aladdin, the animated series, he'd worked on... Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, which had four episodes oh, when it aired in 1989, called To the Rescue, that could be a two-hour block. And then 1991, he, he does Darkwing Duck, and they did an hour-long special, which was the two uh, first two episodes. He aired it back-to-back, and it told the story of how Drake Mallard adopted Goslin and that sort of thing. And so they're doing the exact same thing when he gets promoted to be the executive producer, director, and story editor of Aladdin. And he's the one who actually goes to Eisner and says, look, Aladdin, the feature like the animated film in 92, made a half a billion dollars worldwide. We have these four episodes that were, or excuse me, five episodes that we're doing for the first, the first season of Aladdin. And, you know, with just a little adjusting, this could be something we could put out through Disney Home Video. We've already spent the money to make these things. The budget for Return to Jafar is $3.5 million, and that really is what it cost to produce those first five episodes of the Aladdin animated series. Uh, To Eisner's credit, he's like, geez, I don't know. What if this dilutes the brand? But all right, let's roll the dice. Let's give it a try. And so that comes up May of 1994. The very next month is The Lion King. How many years was that the top grossing animated film of all time? Right. And so here's Eisner literally standing there, you know, here's the pile of money that Return to Jafar made. And again, that first week that was available on VHS, $70 million worth of units sold. And by by the time it was done worldwide, Return to Jafar had made $300 million off of $3.5 million that had already been spent for Aladdin the Animated Series. So if you were Eisner, what would you do? Of course you'd green light that. In fact, I want to say the very next home premiere is actually the first five episodes of Gargoyles. They didn't even get around to producing a one that they'd legitimately written to be a home premiere 
till Aladdin and the King of Thieves, uh, which was out in August of 96. But huge success, June of 1994, with Lion King, August of 1994, Jeffrey Katzenberg resigns. October of 1994, he forms DreamWorks SKG, and as you mentioned, he brought his Rolodex from Disney home, and he's got the home phone numbers of every single character animator who worked for the company, and he's cold calling them and trying to convince them to come over to, to DreamWorks Animation. Suddenly, there's this salary war and bidding war for talent, and then you look ahead to November of 1995, and here comes Toy Story. And the world changes, because suddenly here's this CG film that looks different. And not only that, it's written in such a way that it appeals to adults and kids. You know, here's Disney doubling down with not only having split the studio, so they're producing twice as many films over at Walt Disney Animation Studios, but they all also now have uh, Walt Disney Home Entertainment preparing its own line of these home premieres. The box office for Disney films starts to dip. And some of that, they argue, is because of the glut. Uh, likewise, the competition from places like DreamWorks. It's this sort of collective idea that animation was was now just the realm of CG. And you saw DreamWorks, because people forget that DreamWorks, you know, Shrek was kind of their toy story, but they made a lot of hand-drawn animated movies back in the day between... Prince of Egypt and uh, Spirit and Sinbad and all these things that, that people don't really talk about anymore, but were really high-end, really well-produced animated product. But you saw slowly the, the international studios shut down because, you know, at this oh, yeah. point we had a Disney animation studio in Paris, where uh, Paris, Australia. Oh, in Japan. And Japan, Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all those shut down, and the Florida Park shut down, the studio at the Florida Park. But what was weird was that you saw in those waning days that a lot of the top-tier animators were working on those those direct-to-video sequels that were so beneath everybody to begin with, because mm -hmm. that was just the only stuff left to work on. Peter was asking about folks like James Baxter, and, you know, here's a guy who was... Uh, lead animator on Bella, Beauty and the Beast, and, you know, likewise Rafiki and Lion King, Quasimodo and Hunchback of Notre Dame. And when Jeffrey was staffing up, he called and he called James and made the crazy, stupid money offer. And, and it wasn't just how money Baxter had actually enjoyed working with Katzenberg at Disney. So the fact that he was off setting up his own studio, it's like, okay, I'll go. So... He spends well, nearly a decade at DreamWorks Animation. He, he works on 2D films like Prince of Egypt, Rodale Dorado, and Spirit of the Cimarron. When uh, DreamWorks switches to a mostly CG operation, he changed with them. He animated individual scenes and sequences for Shrek 2 and the original Madagascar. James then stepped out on his own and set up his own animation studio. And then it was the question of who's willing to hire me for what? And all those wonderful hand-drawn scenes at the beginning of Disney's Enchanted, those were done not by Disney, but by James Baxter Studio. Do you remember the opening of the original Kung Fu Panda where the animation was looked like it was done on rice paper? Yes. Watercolors yes. that bled? That was James. But he's this amazing, ambidextrous talent. I mean, he can do... Feature-length projects for theatrical release, you can do 
masterful work for television. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times people have sent me the animation. It's from the Steven Universe season six finale it's this the steven fusion scene where yes it's almost a master class this little chunk of animation about where you can create a moment that not only has physical weight but emotional gravity and james baxter it's so beloved in the industry he's a character on that show yeah what is it james baxter the horse the horse yeah You know what else he animated on, Jim, that, that is a Disney movie? He did the uh, Mary Poppins animated sequence from Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, Which I, I think we can all agree is the best part of that movie. Yeah, yeah. that's all killer stuff. I mean, look, there's a reason why back in 2018, this guy got the Windsor McKay Award. That's sort of something you give somebody at the end of their career, and it's like, no, James Baxter is still going. I mean, oh, yeah. just... Just last year, he was made the director of character animation over at Netflix. And as I understand it, he's working very closely with Sergio Pobbs on Klaus. And just because James left Disney, but didn't really leave Disney, because again, I was just talking about Enchanted and Drew was just talking about Mary Poppins Returns. This guy's artistry goes on, but it just means that he's working for different places and doing different things. And the sort of circle back to the nine old men, that world really doesn't exist anymore anywhere, not just in Hollywood. I mean, Drew, how many different companies have you worked for in like the last (laughs) five years? Yeah, it's a few. Yeah, but I mean, I think that he's in a good spot at Netflix. Did you ever see that, that little documentary thing they put out about him and him talking about how he really wants to like oversee things now and mm-hmm. that he's kind of done being just an animator. It was mm-hmm. it was really interesting and it really filled me with a lot of hope for for Netflix. And it also made me happy that there was a traditional animation guy who has this level of stature in the industry mm-hmm. now because a lot of them don't. No, they don't. But just because they're not working for a major outfit like Disney doesn't mean they're not doing interesting things. And in fact, Pete's letter is a wonderful jumping off point for, you know, I'd love to use this as an excuse to to talk about what Glenn Keane is up to, or or for that matter, what Andres Deja is doing right now. Likewise, Mark, Hannah, Eric, and, and Kathy. Why don't we look at uh, revisiting this idea at, at a future fine tuning? Without yes, work for let's you? do it. We love all these people. We are still in touch with all these people too, mm-hmm. so we can we can give a more up to date look at wh- where these guys are. Okay. Well, well, well. Thanks again, to Mr. Jenkins, for for suggesting this and great idea. We'll, we'll definitely pursue this. And speaking of pursuing things, Drew, I mean, I. Love your Light the Fuse podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, no, you get so many interesting people from all aspects of these movies to sit down and talk about them. And face it, they don't just talk about working on the Mission Impossible movies. They talk about the other films they've worked on, the Star Wars films and the like. And Yeah, we actually just talked to Scott Chambliss, who is J.J. Abrams' longtime production designer and was the mm-hmm. production designer on Mission Impossible 3. And so we talked to him, and it was amazing. He talked about Tomorrowland and all these other things. Um, And we actually sat down on the same day. We sat down with Tom Cruise's stunt double of 10 years. 
and he did two of the Mission Impossible movies, and that conversation is going to blow people's minds. It's so fun. This guy has done so much work. He was the alien in Mission in um, Men in Black who who tells Will Smith that the the world is going to end, and then he falls off the you know the guy with the double eyelids. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. him. So. He's got so many amazing stories. Where he doubled Tom in the first two is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that that's going to be a really cool series of episodes. So you have a lot of stuff to look forward to. Okay. Well, all right. Uh, be sure and check Light the Fuse out, folks. On, on this side of the fence, the usual Pollock crowd, we've got the Disney podcast I do with Len Testa. Likewise, Universal's Joint with Dustin Fuse. We have uh, looking at Loki's film with the... Amazing Dan Zare. Let's see, we've also got uh, Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams. Head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our show. And I'm not just talking about fine-tuning. I'm also talking about Light the Fuse. If you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be very helpful. In fact, we just uh, dropped a brand new uh, Bandcamp exclusive episode. Lennon did a deep dive on all of the Epcot stuff. I'm listening to that right now, Jim. I had to pause that to record this episode, but I'm, uh, I'm so I'm very well, excited. Well, then you managed to stay awake. That's a good sign. Okay. Well, anyway, folks, uh, that's going to do it for this week's show. And thanks for listening. We'll be, be, be back soon. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.